Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, please open your Bibles to Titus <coughs> chapter 1. And uh, as you're doing so, let me just uh, summarize uh, where we've been going over the last couple of weeks. What we've been studying uh, is the task that Paul assigned to Titus and to the men whom Titus would commission as elders in the local churches. Uh, it's a task that spans generations and geography at all times, in all places. This is what elders are to do. And so in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, we read of an elder that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, the necessity of this is given immediately in verses 10 to 11, where the task of eldership is firstly to confront the deceivers. The scriptures make clear over and over that false teachers will rise up in the churches, seeking to cause all sorts of damage, and they must be confronted and they must be silenced. But it's not merely those causing the trouble. As we saw last week in verses 12 to 14, the elders' task also involves counselling the deceived. It's not simply a matter of of dealing with the false teachers, uh, but directing those who have been taken in by the false teachers' beliefs and behaviours. So cutting the ties to those false teachers and bringing these believers back into truth and godliness. That is an act of love to do so. Now, in the final two verses of of chapter 1, Paul gets to the heart of the matter. He clarifies the deception. He shines a light on the darkness and exposes what is at the core of false teaching and why the church should be very wary. And so this is the third aspect of the elders' task. They too must clarify the deception. So let's read verses 15 to 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now we really do need to feel the weight of this teaching regarding the nature of deception. Because if we trivialise it or make light of it, we are likely to stumble ourselves. And that's how deception works, isn't it? The point of deception is to make you think that something is not as dangerous as it really is, And to make you think that you are not in as much danger as you really are. In June 1944, the Allies landed at Normandy and established a foothold on Europe. Uh, This was the decisive battle that turned the tide. It would only be a matter of time before victory. But six months later, in December 1944, there came the bloodiest battle for the US in World War II. The Battle of the Bulge. In a complete surprise attack, the Germans threw everything they had at them. 
Now, how had the Americans not seen it coming? Well, there were clear indicators, but there were also a, a number of other factors that hindered their ability to recognise it. But if they were able to discern the information clearly, we may never have heard of this battle. The elders of the church are to be diligent and on guard that they may be able to shepherd the flock away from deception and into the life-giving truth of Scripture and to the one whom Scripture points towards, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the congregation, these are important verses helping us to understand the true nature of falsehood. Now, there are five words that summarise what Paul says here about false teachers. And the first thing he says is that false teachers are defiled. Verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now, Paul uses the word pure in two senses. And knowing that is key to understanding what he means here. Firstly, he speaks of pure in the sense of being cleansed from sin. And it's easy to see this in in contrast uh, to what he says between those who are pure and those who are defiled. Those who have been cleansed from sin by repenting and, and placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have been made pure. But those who have not done so are still in their sin, are still defiled, are still depraved and corrupted. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Paul expands on this when he speaks of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ gave his life to redeem his people to buy them out of slavery and to present them purified and cleansed before himself. It was only through the shed blood of Christ on the cross that the punishment against sin could be atoned for, that those who trust in Christ for salvation may have their sins forgiven. Well, in contrast to the pure are those who are defiled. And why are they considered defiled? Because they are unbelieving. Because they have not looked to God for merciful salvation. They have not been cleansed. And so they remain in their sin and they remain defiled. To be cleansed from sin is what Paul means by his first use of the word pure. But there is a second use of the word pure. He says, to the pure, that is, those who have been cleansed by sin, all things are pure. So what does Paul mean by this? He means that a person who has been inwardly cleansed cannot be defiled by the things outside of them. It is what is on the inside that matters most. Remember from last week that the false teachers had been uh, telling people that they must avoid marriage and, and abstain from certain foods Well, this is what Paul meant in verse 14 by the the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Now, just turn back in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We looked at this passage briefly last week, but I want these words to really sink in. 
1 Timothy chapter 4. And from verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So right there you have the deceivers and the deceived that we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks. And did you catch how Paul refers to false teaching? He says it comes through deceitful spirits and it is the teaching of demons. We need to let these truths remind us of the inherent danger of false teachings. You know, we are far too casual when it comes to false teachers in the church today. We chalk up their blatant falsehood and blasphemy to to simple misunderstanding. And we allow their views to perpetuate under the guise of, of celebrating diversity in the church. But would we be so welcoming of falsehood if we saw it for what it really is? The teaching of demons. I don't think so. Now, if we continue from verse 3, Paul highlights the specific falsehood that Timothy faced in Ephesus and a similar thing that Titus faced in Crete. These false teachers, verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The false teachers were asserting that a person must avoid marriage and certain foods in order to be made pure. Do these things and you'll be made pure. But Paul expressly denies this, stating in verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, avoiding marriage comes from a false understanding that the spirit is good, uh, but matter, physicality, our bodies are evil. This is a, a Greek Concept. It's not a Hebrew, it's not a biblical concept. Marriage between one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others for life is the express design of God and is a good thing. Now some Christians may have the gift of celibacy, but in general, most will get married. And that is something to be celebrated, not avoided. The food restrictions, uh, they stem from holding on to the Old Testament dietary laws. But the foods that were listed as being impure or unclean uh, by God under the Mosaic law are no longer unclean for believers. They had served in their time as boundary markers between Israel and the Gentile nations. But now that Christ has come, the church is not a people of one flag, but we are a people of one faith. And so all foods can be eaten with an attitude of thankfulness. For those who've trusted in Christ for salvation, Paul has this word in in Colossians 2, verses 16 to 17, he says this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's important to remember that the Old Testament pointed to Christ and Christ fulfilled the law. 
If we don't recognize this, we will be fooled into trying to do things or not do things in order to be made right with God. But that just cannot happen. Our works do not contribute to be, to be declaring, to being declared righteous and pure before God. So just come back to Titus chapter 1. Paul is saying that for those who have been made pure through faith, all things are pure. We can enjoy the things that God has made with thankful hearts because he has dealt with our sin on the inside. But for those who are defiled and unbelieving, those whose sins have not been dealt with, what does he say? For them, nothing is pure. They can do nothing to earn a right standing before God because their moral impurity, their defilement, has a detrimental effect on everything they do. They certainly can't purify themselves. and Their actions are defiled because both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now, what does that mean? Minds and the consciences are defiled. It means that even a sinner's way of thinking and their moral self-consciousness are corrupted. Now, in theological terms, this points to the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity. This is the teaching that sin has corrupted every single fibre of a person's being. This doesn't mean that people are utterly depraved, that is, that they are as wicked as they could be all the time. No, total depravity means that there is nothing within sinners that has not been affected by sin, including the mind and the conscience. And so, while sinners can choose and act freely, they are bound to make these choices by what they desire according to their sinful nature. They're not free to choose what they do not desire. That would go against any sense of free will. And so here is why the Bible speaks of the necessity of the Spirit's work to regenerate a sinner's heart before that sinner can respond to God in faith. You see, unless God graciously acts to affect a person's will, to cause that sinner to desire something other than sin to desire to repent of sin and to trust in Christ, unless God does this first, then no sinner would ever respond. Unless God graciously changes a sinner's will, then it would be a violation of that sinner's will to respond to God against their own desire for sin. Paul lays out clearly the work of the Spirit in Titus chapter 3. He says this in... Verses 4 to 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And it is this truth about the Spirit's regenerating work that makes clear the need for God's sovereign election that Paul speaks of in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, when he says that his own ministry is for the sake of the faith of God's elect. If God did not sovereignly choose before time those whom he would graciously bring to salvation, if he simply looked down the passage of time 
and chose to save all who would respond to him, then he would not have seen any hands raised. Now the truth of God's electing grace is not meant to puff us up, but to keep us on our knees, boasting only in Christ and in the mercy of God. For without God's grace, we too were in the position of the world and these false teachers, defiled in our own thinking and under the judgment of God. What it does is it gives us a heart for the lost. And yet the focus in Titus 1 verse 15 is to show the reason why as Christians we are to be very wary of false teachers because what they say comes from a condition of defilement, not of purity. Now, the fruit of this defilement comes out in the actions of false teachers because Paul shows next that false teachers are deceitful. In verse 16, he says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. False teachers say one thing and they do another. They claim to have a personal relationship with God and yet the way they live and act shows there is actually no relationship at all. And that's what being deceitful means, uh, to cause someone to believe something that is not true. And for those who believe the falsehood, it can be very costly. No doubt Paul specifically has in mind here the way the false teachers uh, were avoiding certain foods and abstaining from marriage. They were rejecting these good things that God had made. And in rejecting them, they showed they they did not know the one who made these good things. But Paul's words here certainly help us to be aware of the nature of all false teaching. Not just that limited to the island of Crete. Jesus spoke of the need to be discerning of falsehood when he said in Matthew 7, verses 15 to 16, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognise them by their fruit. Now, that's not hard to understand, is it? Beware of false prophets. You will recognise them by their fruits. Now, it's interesting to contrast what the false teachers were doing on Crete to the tests of faith that the Apostle John gives in his first letter. You see, in John's account of the Gospel... Uh, He tells us that his purpose in writing is that people may believe in Jesus and have eternal life. He says that in John 20, verse 31. But then in his, his first letter, his purpose for writing is that believers may know they have eternal life. That's 1 John 5, verse 13. That's the wonder of the Apostle John. He tells us exactly what he's doing. So in 1 John, the Apostle outlines a balance of of doctrinal and moral tests that every person who confesses the name of Christ should evaluate their confession in the light of. But these are also tests that believers can use to discern whether a teacher is from Christ or not. Now, we don't have time this morning to go through all the tests that John lays out, but we're going to highlight uh, several of them. So if you can turn to 1 John, 
And we'll highlight several of these tests. They come out in multiple verses. An excellent study of these tests uh, is found in the book by John MacArthur called The Gospel According to the Apostles. And I would highly recommend that to you. So 1 John, and we're just going to take a few moments to let the Apostle John's words speak into our own hearts and equip us with the tools to discern falsehood. So 1 John chapter 1, he says this in verses 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So how does that line up with the false teachers that Titus faced? Were they walking in the light? Did they, did the way they lived testify that Christ had cleansed them from their sin? I don't think so. In the next verse, in verses 8 and 9, John says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What about this? Did the false teachers seem repentant? Were they apologetic for the harm they were causing to the families in the churches? Did they ask for forgiveness? Or did they think that unnecessary? Alright, flick over to John chapter 1 John 2 and in verse 4 we read this. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. If the false teachers really knew Christ, really had a relationship with him, then they would be submitting themselves to his lordship. A Christian is someone who belongs to Christ. So for someone to claim that term for themselves and live in disobedience to his commands, they're being deceitful. And not only to others, but they're just completely deluding themselves to think they are truly Christ's. They'll be among those whom Jesus speaks of in Matthew seven twenty one. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. For a person who has been saved by God's grace, then it is an absolute blessing, not a burden, a blessing to follow God's commands. According to, to Psalm 119 verse 97, the true believer can cry this out. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Oh, how I love your law. That is the cry that believers can have as we open the word of God. Well, finally, connected to obedience is the desire for growing in holiness. Chapter 3, 1 John 3 and verse 6, we read this. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The righteousness that we receive by faith is an imputed righteousness. Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to a believer, while the believer's sins are credited to Christ. Believers are not then pure and righteous in and of themselves. They will be perfected 
this will be perfected when when uh, our bodies are glorified in the resurrection at Christ's return. But while we still struggle with indwelling sin, the scriptures say we have died to sin and that sin no longer enslaves us. And so even though it tempts us, it does not control us. Paul says in Romans 6 verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then in verse 11 he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. The battle against indwelling sin is one that all Christians continue to face. And the test of a true believer is that they are actually engaged in this battle. John is not saying that anyone who sins is not a Christian. No, he's saying that Anyone who has no concern about sin in his life is not a Christian. A true believer will be grieved by sin in his life and be working hard by the power of the Holy Spirit to grow in holiness. And this ties to the point that Paul has been making in his letter to Titus. Titus 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. A genuine Christian is one who is seeking to be more like Christ each and every day. He will not allow habitual sin to go unchecked. He looks at his life in comparison to the scriptures and what the Bible calls sin, he will call sin. And work hard in the Spirit's power to deal with it. On the other hand, a false teacher or a false convert is one who celebrates what the Bible condemns. Those who profess to know God but deny Him by the works are deceitful. The fruit of their works show that they do not belong to Christ. Now in the second half of Titus 1.16... Uh, The last three aspects of the false teachers come in very quick succession and and we'll be going through these quicker than the first two elements. And uh, while in one way they they summarise what's already been said, they do so with excellent clarity and even greater force. So as Paul continues, he says that false teachers are detestable. Now this is strong language indeed. Something that is detestable is something that stinks. Something that is foul and abhorrent. Something that is an abomination. A related word is used in Proverbs 17 and verse 15 where we read, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. By drawing believers away from those things that God had deemed good, uh, things like food and and marriage, and then toward evil, uh, trusting in their own works for salvation. The false teachers in Crete uh, were indeed condemning the righteous and justifying the wicked. Isaiah had a stern warning for people that did such a thing when he declared in chapter 5 verse 20, woe! to those who call evil good and good 
evil. These truths are vindicated when we look to the last book of the Bible. Revelation 21 verse 8, the Apostle John lists the kind of people who will not enter the new heaven and the new earth. He says this, 21 verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now here, the word detestable refers to those who have joined in the worship of false gods. But this ties in with the teaching of Proverbs and and the teaching of Isaiah and Paul. Because if we fail to worship the true God, fail to worship him in the way that he calls us to, fail to, to accept his means of salvation, which is faith in Christ alone, and if we we fail to live then in accordance with what he deems to be right and wrong. Those who lead people away from the truth of God's word are detestable before the Lord. And this action of leading others away is made explicit with Paul's next word in Titus 1.16 where he specifically says that false teachers are disobedient. And disobedience to God and to his word is a sign of unbelief. In Titus 3, Paul draws this out very clearly. He speaks on the need to show obedience to rulers and authorities because this is a sign, this is a sign of a life that has been touched by the kindness of God. Titus 3, verse 3, he says that prior to God's gracious work, we ourselves And this is why we can't be prideful about coming to to Christ. It's only by his mercy because this is is describing what we were before this. He says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In Ephesians 2, he brings that point out again. Speaking to believers, he says in verses 1 to 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The false teachers that Titus had to deal with were clearly showing themselves disobedient to God's commands because they were living in direct contrast to the truth and commanding others to do the same. In one sense, it doesn't get any clearer than this in determining whether someone is a false teacher. Do their words and their lives match up to Scripture? Now, one of the issues we face, however, is that false teachers will be insistent that they are being faithful to the Scriptures. It's just that they have discovered the true meaning of the text which has led them to believe certain things or behave in certain ways. Everyone else has got it wrong, but they have, they've come to understand what it really means. Now, let me be clear. I am not talking about those who, who may have a different interpretation on, on secondary or even tertiary issues. For instance, 
If we're all in agreement that Christ will physically return one day to judge the living and the dead, then it would be wrong to label a brother a heretic who has a different belief about the timing and manner in which that will play out. While our convictions about secondary or even tertiary matters may at times affect the way we can minister with other Christians, it doesn't mean that we deny their faith. For example, a brother in Christ may believe that we are saved by grace, uh, but not hold that God has sovereignly elected his people before the beginning of creation. Now that uh, is going to affect whether he's asked to preach from this pulpit, uh, because that is the teaching position of this church. However, that is a far, far cry from those who flatly deny that justification is by grace alone. No, when it comes to false teachers, we are thinking of of teaching that violates first order matters, essential truths of the gospel. Teaching about the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit. Uh, The true deity and humanity of Christ. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The omniscience of God. That is that he knows everything. Now, this is particularly relevant at this moment in history regarding the nature of marriage. There are those in the churches who believe they have interpreted the scriptures correctly, showing that the Bible says nothing against what we recognize today as consensual, supportive, same-sex relationships, and that the Bible gives a scope uh, for us to broaden this definition of marriage from being between one man and one woman to being between two people. These people assert that they are being faithful to the scriptures. But those who are heading this up are simply modern day false teachers. Straight up. Last year we we spent several weeks going through all the major passages in scripture concerning this topic and, and showed how these new interpretations have no standing when we allow scripture to interpret scripture rather than allowing the culture to be the driving force for how we interpret scripture. Marriage is not a secondary issue, it is a gospel issue. Because in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that marriage between a man and a woman is actually a reflection of the union between Christ and the church, which is his bride. And so to deny biblical marriage is to deny the gospel. Ultimately, false teachers will show themselves to be disobedient to God's word. They will say they believe in its authority, but then willingly cut it to pieces to assert their own authority over and above it. Now this leads us to Paul's final assertion that false teachers are disqualified. He says they are unfit for any good work. Now, the Greek word translated as unfit means failing to pass the test, unapproved, counterfeit, worthless, disqualified. The direct opposite of this word is used in 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 when Paul gives a charge to Timothy and he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The false teacher is unapproved, is disqualified. 
But disqualified from what? Being able to produce any work that is acceptable to God. Just note the scope of that little word, any. That is direct. It is encompassing. It is complete. Everything the false teacher touches is made unfit and unacceptable to God. Can we see clearly now the reason why we should be so wary of false teaching? It defiles everything. And that is the exact opposite of what God has set in place for his people. We read earlier from Titus 2.14, which said that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. But look what further characterizes Christ's people in the last part of that verse. They are people who are zealous for good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10, Paul says of believers, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. False teachers disqualify themselves from one of the blessed purposes that God has called his people into. Now over the past three weeks, We have addressed the elders' task and it involves confronting the deceivers, counselling the deceived and today we've seen it also includes clarifying the deception. It is vitally important that we as a church take these things to heart, especially considering Paul's evaluation of the false teachers. It is crucial that we don't find ourselves less concerned about this matter than the apostle was. But how are we to ensure that we don't get suckered in by false teachers? How are we to know that God is still sovereign and will keep his people? What is our focus to be on as God's people in the light of this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because it's simple, really. We are to study the truth through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit who indwells all those who have been saved. God has revealed his word to us. It is able to equip us for every good work. In it, we have all that we need for life and godliness. It is a sufficient word. Today is actually 12 months uh, since my first official sermon as pastor of the Mafra Community Church. And before I preached that day, I said that I wanted to remind myself and and to inform yourselves of the charge that is placed before all pastors. Indeed, as we've seen, uh, the eldership as a whole. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul charges his son in the faith, Timothy, and it's the same charge that is placed before all in pastoral leadership. And these really are fitting words to finish off these past few weeks, looking at the nature of eldership and steadying us as a church as we head into the future. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5 say this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfil your ministry. Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray today that you would give us a clear understanding of the danger of false teaching, that you would help us if there is anything within us that is complacent to this matter, that these words of Paul and the words of wider scripture that we have looked at over these past couple of weeks would help in clarity to that issue. It is dangerous and we need to be very wary. But Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, we do not need to fear uh, false teaching, but we are called to study your word, to study the truth, and to know that we do not do this in our own strength, but those who have trusted in Christ have been filled by his spirit, your spirit, the Holy Spirit indwells your people and illuminates your word to us as we study it, points us to Christ in all things, grows the fruit of righteousness and godliness in our lives. So, Father, help us to have a healthy fear of false teaching, a fear that drives us into your word. Father, we pray that you would protect your church here at Mafra. May we be always seeking to be faithful to your word, submitting to your word. Father, may you help us to be gracious and clear and bold in the way that we proclaim the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to this world. We thank you for these words that we have looked at over the past couple of weeks. And we pray that that would have a blessing on the way that we continue to grow as a church in faithfulness to Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.